Okay, open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7. Mark 7. Well, I heard a, a story, and I'll admit, I don't know if it's true or not, but I imagine it happened in somewhere in America. But there was an atheist who uh, was going to the movie theater, and he was going to watch the last Avengers movie, The Endgame. And he was having a little debate outside of the movie theater with um, a friend of his before he went into the theater. And this friend and him were debating about moral absolutes. And this atheist says, well, I don't believe in moral absolutes. And this friend was saying, oh, you know, uh, you know, I think that there are moral absolutes. I think there is a right and a wrong. And this atheist says, no, come on. That's just people come up with whatever they think. There's no moral absolutes. And. And so this guy said, okay, well, let me tell you the end of Endgame. And he told him the ending. And quickly the atheists believed in moral absolutes. <laughs> now we're going to talk today about the definition of good and evil. Who comes up with the definition of good and evil, right? When you, uh, if, you wanna, if you don't want to know the end of Endgame, that's a movie, by the way, for some of you are like, what's he talking about? Okay. Then, uh, and you don't believe in more absolutes, quickly you decide you're going to when someone says they're going to tell you the ending. Today we're going to talk about the, the definition of evil. Who gets to define it? And you have a handout, and it's a little bit different how it's constructed. It's sideways. We're going to compare the view of God versus the view of man. So you want to get that out. You're going to want to take a lot of notes today. And I'll, I'll tell you this. If you have some questions, write them down. Because we're going to talk about maybe some things that are a little controversial today. And you might want to follow up with me this week. And I would love to do that. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful that your word speaks to us in so many different ways. But one of the most important is, God, we can know you. We can know your character. And therefore, God, we can know what is good. Because you are good. And you do good, as your scriptures say. But God, also we can know how to trust you by faith. We can know what you have done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this morning I pray the revelation of you will be known. And I pray for each person in here. May they cling to you in your truth by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So once again, we find ourselves back in the Gospel of Mark. And we're in Mark chapter 7. And here in this chapter, Jesus is back in Galilee, and he is one year away from his death and resurrection. This takes place, this event in Mark chapter 7 takes place right before, or right after, I should say right after Passover. And after that feast, the religious leaders came from Jerusalem up to Galilee, and they came to try to come against Jesus, to try to discredit Jesus. In fact, if you remember back in Mark chapter 3, that the Pharisees and the Herodians, they plotted together to destroy him. So that's, this is a part of this plot. They're coming back up. They're going to try to discredit the ministry of Jesus, try to end his ministry. Well, how do you discredit a powerful teacher like Jesus Christ? Well, maybe two ways. One, you try to prove what he's teaching is wrong. They couldn't do that very well. And number two... Even better, maybe you try to expose him as a fraud and display his sin and his evil actions. So that's what you kind of see here. Of course, they can't point it out in his life, but they try to point it out in the life of the disciples. So in Mark chapter 7, the religious leaders tried to demonstrate that Jesus, or at least his disciples, were frauds and that they were, they were sinning against God. So look at Mark chapter 7, verse 1. We're not going to read the whole thing since we already did that this morning. But I'm just going to work through the verses and teach through the verses uh, this morning. So Mark chapter 7 verse 1 says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, that's Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Sound effects there, I don't know, but... Defiled. I can't write up that word right there, right? There you go. This wasn't just a casual observation. It wasn't they were walking by. I mean, they were looking. They were critical. They were judgmental. They were, they were trying to find fault. In fact, the next 23 verses here, you see these 
Pharisees and Jesus in a battle. It's a spiritual battle. It's a battle between truth and error. And these men and uh, these Pharisees come out with their doctrine, their belief, and Jesus comes back with what God believes or what he believes. Who is God? So that's the same thing. What's interesting to consider here is that the attack upon Jesus and his disciples was that they were doing something evil. What's interesting to consider is that Jesus turns it around and he says, let me teach you what is actually evil. So in chapter 7, you see two opposing views on the nature of evil. The Pharisees have their view of evil. Look down in verse number 2 and you can see that. They, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled. I was waiting to see if there was a sound effect again. But that word defiled is the idea that it's something's polluted or profane in the, in the eyes of God. And the Pharisees saw what they did, this act, and we'll talk about that in a moment. They saw it as an act of sin, something profane in God's eyes. But Jesus, he refutes that, comes back and he teaches, actually, here's what God's view of evil is. So look down in verse 23 at the conclusion of this passage. Jesus says, all these evil things, and he's speaking of your thoughts and of the breaking of of the sins that break God's laws. He says, all these evil things that you do come from within. So your sin within, they defile a person. In other words, your evil heart is actually what is defiling or profane in the eyes of God. So what's this passage about? Now, I could go through this passage and I could teach on legalism. Some people do that. That'd be appropriate. And we'll talk about that a little bit. I could go through this passage and talk about how Jesus transitioned from the ceremonial laws uh, of eating and declared all foods clean. Look down in verse 19, and you can see that there. This is the place where Jesus announces, he says, the Bible says, thus he declared all foods clean. I could do that. But I think what I'm going to do this morning, the angle that I'm going to take, is what I think actually is the point of this passage, is why Mark put it in here. And that is, I'm going to talk about the nature of evil. Mark 7 represents two standards, two scopes, two sources, and two solutions to evil. Man's view and God's view. And what what you're going to see here is that the view of the Pharisees actually represents what I believe is the general human view of most societies, most people. So what is that? So first of all, the two views of man's view versus God's view. Man's view is this. The standard of evil is defined <clears throat> is defined by mankind. So man's view is this. The sta- or you say human's view, humanity's view, if you want to be politically correct. Humanity's view of evil is the standard of evil is defined by mankind. What is evil? I mean, who gets to decide what is good and what is bad? What is holy and what is wrong? The approach that most societies take, most people take, is to define what evil and good is within that society or within that subculture. So if, if you're within a religious group, they say, well, this is what good is, this is what bad is. Or maybe sometimes it comes from a, a secular line of thought. Well, this is what is good, this is what is bad. Or, or maybe it's just a tradition. This is what our ancestors said. They passed this on to us. But generally what you see in the world throughout history, doesn't matter whether you're an atheist or whether you're super religious, what type of group you're in, everyone has a definition for good and evil. Even those people that believe there's no moral absolutes, they actually do believe in that. Many times... Those standards that they have for good and evil are social and cultural dogma. And so what you see here in Mark chapter 7 is it's in the context here of first century Judaism. And the view of the religious leaders in that first century was that evil was defined by the traditions of the elders passed down over the past hundred of years. So look down in verse number 2. We'll see that. Verse 2 says, And they saw... That some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly. Why did they do that? Well, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Well, why do they do that? Because that's what the elders said. And there, verse 4 goes on to say, and there are many other traditions they observe such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And the Pharisees thought they, they caught Jesus and his disciples. Ha ha, we got gotcha. you. You broke our religious laws. And why do they think that they got him? Because they had this cultural norm that they think came from, or they, they believed came from God and was and, and Uh, They believe it came from God, but it was based upon the tradition of the elders. Now, what are are we talking about here? And what's he talking about here? Why why would these people believe they were following God's laws if it didn't come from the Bible? Well, where did they get these laws from? Well, the laws they're talking about here came from rabbinic teaching, from something called the Mishnah. Have you ever heard of the Mishnah? You might have heard of that before. It, It means repeat. In other words, it's oral law that was written down, and it was passed down from rabbis for hundreds of years. The Mishnah was a mass of Jewish uh, traditions and teachings on basically how to live as a good Jew or how to apply, if you want to say this way, how to apply the scriptures to your life. And so they put this together. Then there was a commentary written on the Mishnah called the Gemara. Gemara, sorry, the Gemara. So Gemara and you have the Mishnah. That's put together. It makes up the Talmud. And the Talmud is huge. In fact, the Babylonian Talmud has over... Two million words. So that's a lot of words to follow. And all that was available to the Pharisees at that time. And they were following, particularly at that moment, the Mishnah, kind of the, 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 the uh, rules that the Mishnah had laid out for Judaism. And there, there were so many rules. Honestly, it was impossible for anyone to follow them. In fact, let me give you an example. In the Bible there, he says that there's ritual pot. Uh, washings for pots and pans and things like that. There are actually 30 chapters in the Mishnah about ceremonial ritual cleansing of pots. Man, that's kind of a a long list to follow, isn't it? And in fact, when he was talking about here about washing your hands, they had this ritual they would do before they would eat food. They would take some water with one hand here and they would they would actually start like this and they'd pour the water over from the top to bottom so the water would run off the bottom of the wrist. Then they would switch and they do it from this way and so it would run, run off this way. And then they do it with the other hand. Then they'd take one hand and they would wash one hand like this. They'd take the other hand and they had this whole ritual that they would go. And that's what he's talking about here. How come they don't do the whole ritual that the Mishnah says that we should do? Those are the rabbis who know God's word, you know, and this is how they, you should apply it. And that's what their thoughts were. In fact, the Pharisees would go into the marketplace, what it's talking about in there, and they would go to the marketplace, and they would come back, and they'd take a bath. Because they thought, you know, if, I, if we touched anything unclean in the marketplace, we want to make sure we're ritually clean. In fact, sometimes, this was an interesting one I read, they would read through the book of Daniel, and when they came to the part that was written in Aramaic, they would read that, then they would go back and take a bath because it wasn't written in Hebrew, so therefore they were unclean. So they had all these rules. It was kind of crazy, and they... They thought that people should follow. And if you look, and I'm not going to read through them all, but if you look from verse 3 down to verse 13, over and over and over again, you see uh, the Mark referring to the tradition of the elders, the commandments of men, the tradition of men, the tradition of the fathers. And so over and over, you see that actually seven times in those 10 verses. So very, very clearly, Mark is getting across here to us. He's saying these Jewish people believed that they were following the or they were following the traditions of man, not of God. Now, if you were to ask a Jewish person that day, you were to say, why do you do those things? They would probably say, that's what God wants us to do. That's what God wants us to do. Those are the rules that God wants us to follow. Now, how could someone say something like that? Think about that. How could someone say something like that? Well, I think there's probably two reasons. One their religious leaders elevated their personal applications above the scripture. So they had preachers, if you want to say, like me, but they're rabbis, and they would say, this is what God wants you to do. So people believe that. The second reason, I think, is that we naturally think that whatever we do is right, unless our consciences go against that, but naturally we think what we do is right, and therefore it's what God wants. Right? People do what they do because they think it's the right thing to do, and they naturally think, well, that must be what God wants then if they believe in God. And so in other words, we can set up ourselves or our culture as the standard for good and evil. And that's, that's humanity's wrong view of evil and good, is that we can set our own standard. We can define 
evil ourselves. And they didn't look to God's word for their definition of good and evil. They defined evil based upon their religious and cultural norms as taught by the rabbis. So what's the standard of, of good and evil for the Christian, for the believer in God? Well, we're to go back to God's word. God's view of evil is that the standard of evil is defined in God's word by God. So notice down in verse number five, how Jesus responds to them. In verse five, he says, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And how does Jesus respond? And he said to them, so what authority does he have? Listen to this. He said to them, well, did Isaiah, Isaiah, what's that? That's the Old Testament prophet. So the you know, Pharisees say, ha, we caught you sinners. And Jesus says, actually, God defines good and evil. Let me quote you some scripture verses. And so verse six, he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written here? He, he is quoting Isaiah. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. You leave the commandment of God. What is that? Commandment of God. That's the words of God. The word of God. The Old Testament. You leave the commandment of God uh, and hold the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. Notice how he's emphasizing over and over the words of God compared to, in contrast to, in order to establish your tradition. And then he says, verse 10 again, and for, who is that? Moses. What did Moses write? The first five books of the Bible. So my point is, you get the point here? Over and over. He's saying, go back to the word of God. God's word defines what is good and what is evil. And of course, we know that because God is the definition of good. Later on, we'll see in Mark that Jesus says, only one is good, and that is God. So God is good, and we learn about God in the word of God, and therefore God's word is what tells us what is good and what is evil. In fact, Psalm 19, 7 and 8 tell us that. The law of the Lord, Scripture, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord, another word for the Scripture, is sure, it's certain. Making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord, again, another word for the word of God, is right. So the scripture tells us what's right and wrong, rejoicing the heart. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. So it comes from God. It's about God. And what is it profitable for? For teaching or doctrine or what is right. So the Bible tells us what is right for teaching, for reproof. It tells us what is wrong, what is evil, for correction, how to make that wrong right through Jesus Christ, and then also for training in righteousness, how to keep following Christ. So the scriptures reveal to us the truth of right and wrong. So how can you know truth? How do you know what the standard for good and evil is? Well, go to the Holy Scriptures, God's written word. In fact, Jesus said this. He said, my word is Truth. It's true. So you can find the truth in God's word. The indictment Jesus makes upon the religious leaders is that that their man-made rules replace the commands of God. And therefore, they are rejecting God's word. They're rejecting God's word. Now, are rules and cultural norms a bad thing in and of themselves? Is it a good thing? We have some cultural norms in our society. Like one of them is we have a speed limit. That's a law that we have. Is that a bad thing? No, it keeps us safe. That's not a bad thing. How about the fact that we wear clothes? That's a cultural norm. You know, go to some tribal places. They don't wear clothes. Okay. Is that a good thing? I'm happy. That's a cultural norm in America. Well, as long as you stay away from the beach. How about traditions? Is it bad to have traditions? Well, we meet at 1030 on Sunday mornings. Is that a bad tradition to have? No, we have to meet, right? But that's, that's a tradition we have. So civil laws, cultural norms, religious traditions are not wrong in and of themselves. We all have them. Every society has them. So when are they wrong? So you can write this down if you want to. When are they wrong? I'll give you two ways you can know that they're wrong. Number one, when you believe 
or act as if you believe. So when you believe your law, or you can say whatever that is, law, cultural norm, religious application, when you believe your law makes you righteous before God. When you believe your law makes you righteous before God. When you believe your law, your cultural norm, or maybe your religious application makes you better in God's sight, gives you some kind of credit. But see, God's laws can't even do that, <laughs> right? God's laws actually condemn us and show us that we need a savior. But sometimes people think and act like that's true. Secondly, we can know they're wrong. When, when a law rejects, replaces, or obscures the word of God, So when a law or a cultural norm or religious application rejects, replaces, or obscures the word of God. In fact, look down in verse number 8. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he says. Verse 8, he says, you leave the commandment of God, that's the words of God, and hold to the tradition of the elders or of, of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So the religious Pharisees replaced God's word with man's word, and therefore they rejected God's word. And so what we see here is that they they lift up their standard of good and evil above God's word, and therefore reject God's word. But see, this false instinct that, that they had here actually pervades all societies. The standard of evil being defined by man maybe by religious groups or by society. It's, it's, it's within every society and subculture. Let me give some examples, okay? This is going to be fun. This is what I said. It's maybe a little controversial, but it'll be a lot of fun. So I'm going to have fun. I would just notice, I'm going to go through some examples. Notice how, how people, humans, establish their own standards of good and evil and use those to reject God's word. So, for instance, think about just the American subcultures, The American cultures, and there's some sins in America that our culture has come up with that are their definition of good and evil. And so they they have a definition of of what is evil and what is good. And so think about these. For instance, some see it as wrong to have capital punishment, but there's no problem with killing a baby in the womb. So think about that. So So in one sense, you have something that's that's good. They, they can see it as good, killing a baby in the womb. And you have, the other hand, you see it as bad to have capital punishment, right? So what is, what, what is the question, though? What does God's word say about that? The Bible says, actually, that the government wields the sword and actually should punish the evildoer. Not necessarily saying everyone has to die, but the point is they have the right to do that. And the Bible says that a baby in the womb is created by God, Psalm 139. How about this? The American subculture Consider some sexual sins as bad. So the whole Me Too movement is built upon that, right? You know, you can't force yourself upon someone else. So they see that as bad. And by the way, that is wrong, according to God's word, okay? But then also they promote and encourage other sexual sins. So they have their own definition for what is good and what is bad. In some American subcultures like universities, they pass rules and laws that make it wrong to call someone by a pronoun that is not their preferred pronoun. So if someone wants to be called it, then if you don't, and this is, this is a real thing, if you don't call them it, you call them a he or a she, and they don't want to be called a he or she, that actually it's a, against the rules. You can be kicked out of school. In fact, in Canada, they're trying to get it to the place where you actually can be arrested for it. You could be fined for it. So, but where do you come up with something like that? It's like they have their own definition for right and wrong. The list could go on and on. And my point is, many of those cultural norms and laws actually reject God's word. But what you see is every person in society, they have a standard for right and wrong. Even if they don't want to admit it, sometimes you have to point it out to them. Eventually, they'll come to that conclusion. I received a, a magazine this past week from a certain denomination. They accidentally sent it to our church. I think it was supposed to go to another church since it had their name on it. But anyways, it was was interesting as I read through the first article they had in there that it was an interesting article about loving people. And then towards the middle of the article, you kind of got the idea that they they were saying that the church needs to be very inclusive. Let me ask this question. Just think about in your head. Should we as a church be inclusive? Well, all ethnic groups, all social classes and backgrounds should be included in the church. That's what heaven is, actually, redeemed by God. 
Okay? It's from every tribe and nation. And, okay? So that's definitely, we should be inclusive in that way. But in the article, they define inclusiveness as loving people by ignoring their sinful choice to live a homosexual lifestyle. So that was their idea of what is good. Now, they didn't use the word sin, okay? But I'm telling you what the conclusion is, my conclusion of what they were saying. But their standard of good and evil was good means we ignore something the Bible calls sin, and evil is calling someone to repentance for their sexual sin. So so that religious, religious denomination has set up a religious rule that rejects and replaces God's laws with their own law. I like examples. So we're just keep, we're going to keep going here. How about another one? This one I read on Twitter this past week. In Pennsylvania this past week, a mom and her two teenage daughters and a, and a girl, they were in Pennsylvania, and they were praying outside of uh, Planned Parenthood. And they were praying for the babies and the mothers in there. And so a, a Pennsylvania state representative, uh, Representative Brian Sims, uh, whose district is in Philadelphia, he came up, had a video camera. You can actually watch it online. And he was, you know, very angry coming after them. And, uh, and he posted online. This is what he said on Twitter. He says, push back against Planned Parenthood protesters, please. They prey on young women. They use white privilege and shame. They're racist, classist bigots who need and deserve our righteous opposition. Now, I, I'm putting this out because I'm not doing making any political statements. And I'm not coming against a politician. We should honor this man as Bible, the Bible says we should. He's a man of an authority, okay? So we should never come against him as a person and as, as a, I'm sorry, as a politician in, in the aspect that we um, speak evil of him. But we can definitely sp- speak of his actions and his words, right? And what the Bible says about that, and that's what I'm doing right here, okay? Um, so here's a politician who cries out when he sees evil women, as he sees it, who are praying. So that's what his definition of evil is. And he has a standard there. He says, this is what their, their sin is. This is the evilness that they're, that they're committing, that they, they are white, racist, and actually I am against racism, but he has a different definition of it there, bigots, and who deserve righteous opposition. So notice he believes in good and evil as defined by who? By himself and his, his social subculture. And also he believes in righteous judgment as given out by himself. As he told people, hey, find out their names so we can come out, you know, find out who these people are and embarrass them or whatever. I think it's, there's like a term for that. I can't remember what it is. But anyways, but my point is, I'm, think through these things. Think through these things. Like, what's the question that we should ask? This man has these human standards for good and evil and therefore rejects God's word. So what does the Bible say about some of those things? And so where did Mr. Sims get his definition for evil and for good? Like, he has one. He got it from his own, his own uh, society, from his own subculture. So he's rejected God's word. So man made standards for man has his own standards for good and evil. And no matter what society or subculture, religious group you're in, they're all in that. So we could go through a lot of different groups. We could talk about this month is the month of Ramadan. So Islam, they have their different laws, right? And you have to do this and don't do this. And so who established who established that? If you're an environmental radical, you think that it's actually wrong to get an airplane and fly somewhere, right? Because that's one of your rules that you say you can't get an airplane. It's wrong because it hurts society. And so no matter who you are, everyone has a standard for good and evil. And the question then is this, is that standard God's standard? That's the question. Is it God's standard? And you say, well, how can you know? Go to the scriptures that tell us what is right. God's word has communicated his righteous standard, which is frankly himself. So now you're sitting there and you're thinking, I'm glad I'm not like any of those people before you get all pious and think I'm not that way. Christian religious groups and subcultures within Christianity, I think, are some of the worst offenders of this. Uh, of setting up man-made standards and as good and evil and using those to reject, replace, or confuse the word of God, obscure the word of God. So many Christians make religious rules and and they make their applications to God's word, which are good to do. You make applications to God's word. But then they set those up, replace God's word, or put them above God's word, and falsely teach that following those rules can make you righteous before God. And some even elevate their religious practice and application above the word of God. So, for example, 
coming to church on Sunday. Is that something God wants you to do? Is that a command in the scripture? Absolutely it is. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. So that's definitely something. But then some churches teach that if you miss a church service or you don't go to mass, as they call it, there's a lot of issues we could talk about there, but they don't go to mass, then you actually, or, uh, or I should say, if you go to church or you go to mass, you actually can get credit from God. Like God will like you more, or maybe you'll be more righteous in God's eyes if you go to church. So some people preach that and teach that. You need to come to church so you can, you can be more righteous in God's eyes. Well, that's actually against the scriptures. That's actually rejecting the scriptures. How about us? We have a tradition that we meet at 1030 on Sunday morning. Well, some churches can change times or services and things like that. And they can say, well, we're going to meet in the evenings or we're going to meet in this time. Or we're going to do this. People get all up in arms. I can't believe we're doing that. We're walking away from the things of God. <laughs> okay. No, actually, you can't replace the command or you can say the application of scripture in the place of God's command. So some traditions are actually not helpful in a church service like this. They actually obscure, obscure the word of God. So it's not necessarily wrong. It's just like, that's not actually helpful for us to, to do in a church service like this or in life. So it's healthy for us to consider our, the culture in which we live and look around and to consider, am I believing, think about this, am I believing or acting as if, Following this tradition, because again, traditions aren't necessarily bad, but my believing or acting like following this tradition makes me more righteous in God's eyes. And secondly, am I elevating a religious practice or application above the word of God? In other words, say it like this. Does my religious practice or application or cultural habit, does it reject the word of God? Does it replace the word of God? Does it obscure the word of God? I think another thing to to consider here is we need to distinguish between the commands, the clear commands and principles of God's word, the clear commands and principles of God's words, and the application of God's words. What happens many times is that we like to elevate our application to put it on par with that, or sometimes even above God's word. God wants us to apply the scriptures, so important to do, but we must be careful we don't elevate our application to the same level as the authoritative words of God. So think about what are the, what are the distinctions between the commands and the clear teachings of God's word and our application. Well, God's commands are imperatives. We must take seriously when God says it, that settles, settles it. But also, God has given us his word and, and his, his commands and his principles, and we must draw applications from that. We must say, like, what does that look like in real life? What does that look like for, for me in my life? And for something that's, that's not very clear... In other words, maybe you have a principle and you're going to draw an application from that principle. You have to be careful about holding on to that too tightly and saying that is exactly what God wants for every person. So let me give some examples. And let me say this. If you have some questions about this, I have a book you could read. Um, I have it down here. Also, Romans 14 is a good passage for you to read through and think through this. But for instance, let's, let's think practically. What does the Bible say about murder? Is it wrong to murder? Yeah, so, so think about this. The application from that, if I go out and kill someone, is that wrong? Yeah, that's a pretty clear teaching from God's word, right? Okay, now don't say this one out loud just in case. <laughs> is it wrong? Does the Bible teach against having a tattoo? Oh boy, I know. Can we believe we just went there? But I want you to think about this. A tattoo is an application to God's word. Like you're not going to look through the New Testament and Paul's not going to say, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not have a tattoo. It doesn't say that in the New Testament, okay? You might try to go to the Levitical code and try to find something in there, but that's a problem too. And that's another issue. We can talk about your hermeneutics, how do you interpret the scripture, but you're not going to find that in the scriptures, okay? So that's an application. So some people lift that up and they say, well, you should never have a tattoo. You know, Bible well, that's an application to it. Now, some of the kids in here, they're like, yes, mom, I can get a tattoo now. Well, first, God says, obey your parents. <laughs> right? So don't reject God and his standard. This is serious. Like, don't reject God and his standard just so you can have what you think you should be able to have. And also, I think Romans 14, like I said, you could read through that, makes it clear. Here's how you should make decisions. Make them for the glory of God, for the sake of your spiritual health, for the good of serving other people, which you should think about if you're 18 years old and want to go have a tattoo. Think about what is 
God possibly have for me in the future? You know, how is this going to help me in, in ministry in the future to minister to other people? You need to make him in faith toward God. Remembering this, remembering in Acts or in uh, Romans 14, you will stand before God for how you applied the scriptures. And not in judgment, but the, the reality is, is that actually it's a very important thing that you apply the scriptures in a discerning way. But the Bible is not dogmatic about something like a tattoo. I think parents, we got to be careful about how we talk to our kids about that. I can remember um, a couple, well, I guess it was about a year and a half ago, one of my kids were in a, a swimming place one place and someone had tattoos over their body and they said, oh, they have those. Is that wrong, daddy? You know, what's easy to do when you have children is to give a snap answer and say, oh, yeah, it's wrong. Well, first of all, that's not necessarily true. And I said, it depends. Don't you love that, kids, when your parents say that to you? But it does depend, doesn't it? Like, you're not going to find that in scriptures, but it can be wrong. And we could talk about that at the time. But the point is, is that that's an application to scripture. Okay, so let's do this. Let's take a quiz here, okay? What's the difference between the commands of God and application? So, for instance... Gathering together as a church. Is it a command? Yes, it is. 10.30 on Sunday morning? Application. Okay? How about you should lie on your taxes? That's a command. Don't lie. Okay? How about, ooh, here we go. We've got some other ones. How about be modest? Is that something we should do? Does the Bible tell us to do that for young ladies and men? Absolutely. That's something you should do. Now, how do you apply that? So does that mean that you must, as a lady, wear a dress down to your ankles? Well, if you're in the as a 19th century, or not, yeah, 19th century, you might, right? Maybe back then, probably was a good application for them. If you're uh, over in Indonesia and you wore something like that, you'd actually be immodest. Do you realize that? My sister was here last week, remember? Actually over there, long sleeves, long pants for ladies. If you show, you know, parts of your arms and your legs, even if you're in a, what Americans consider a modest dress, is immodest for them. My point is this, is that just because your culture says something, like you got to be careful by applying that to everyone. Well, everyone. So sometimes missionaries go to different places and they're like, I'm going to bring my American culture there. Well, actually, take the principles of God's word and apply it within the culture that you're in. So it's important to be modest, but you have to remember that you have to apply those principles within that culture and definitely have to do that. But don't take how you apply things and say, therefore, all societies, all times and all places must apply it this way, right? Okay, how about this? You should dress up for church. Oh, boy, did I really go there? I know, I told you today was going to be an interesting day, didn't I? But it's actually interesting. The Bible does give some commands about how you dress for church. 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Not with braided hair or gold or perils or costly apparel or attire, but with what is proper for a woman who professes godliness with good works. And actually more of there's a principle and the principle is don't flaunt your wealth to everyone. So don't come to the assembly and flaunt your wealth, which is interesting because in our culture, in our society, we actually, on the other end, we're like, you actually should dress up as much as possible. Many people do that, right? Is it wrong to dress up for church? No, absolutely not. Is it right to not dress up for church or is it wrong to not dress up for church? Right? So the point is those are applications, right? In other words, you should, there, there are, the Bible says we should be appropriate the Bible tells us we should honor in a way that we should dress in a way that honors God. So that's, those are definitely clear principles that we should look at in God's word. But how do you apply that is going to be different for different people. And actually, I really like the fact that our church, frankly, is very balanced in that. I like the fact that some people dress up and some people don't. And so and I have some thoughts on what the Bible teaches about those things. We don't have time for that. But my point is, those are applications. You have to be careful about looking at someone else and saying, ah, they don't follow my application. Well, don't elevate your personal application of God's word on par with God's word. And so what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to dress up or dress down? Well, I think, like I said, I think it's important for you to take God's word, to apply the scriptures. But generally, I would say this. Let me just, if I could say this, some people are going to like, what's the answer for this? I think dress like you are. Not come as you are, but dress like who you are. Like if, if you know, don't try to dress up and be the most showy person on, earth, on this planet if you're not. Like, if you come in a tuxedo, that might look a little odd, right? Don't try to be the coolest person in the church. That's why I don't wear my ripped jeans. <laughs> Plus, I'm not a very cool person. <laughs> That's not who I am. Like, don't come like you don't care right? in your PJs, you know. My, my point is, is that definitely you should look at God's word. You should apply it to your life. You've got to be careful about elevating that up. How about this one? 
Train up your children to love God. Is that a command? How about this one? Thou shalt homeschool thy children. No, (laughs) it's not. Is it right or wrong to send your kids to a public school, a private school, or homeschool? See, sometimes how people talk and how churches and pastors can talk, sometimes they can speak in a way that elevates their application of how you should educate your child to the, to the authority of Scripture. And nowhere in the Scripture does it prescribe a certain type of schooling for your children. Yes, train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But, and you might have a, a strong conviction one way or the other, and that's great, and you should come to a conclusion on that. On that. But hopefully you've, you've prayed about your decision. Hopefully you're looking in the principles of God's word. But, but that is an application of God's word. It's not the same thing as the authoritative words of God. So for schooling choices, you should, you should get your Bible out. You should study. You should understand your culture. You should ask the spirit of God to give you direction. You should pray about it as a family. But listen, and, and come to that conclusion, that conviction. But don't preach your applications as if your decisions are directly from the mouth of God. And I've heard people in life do that, where they will say, you know, you, that, I can't believe someone ever would do something like that. It's so wrong. Whoa, step back, step back. Like you have to make the convictions that are right for your family within the context of God's word, and you need to come to strong conviction on that. You're going to stand before God about your conclusions, but you got to be careful about elevating the commands of men on par with the commands of God. And I, and I have some personal strong convictions in these areas. So it's not, it's not that I don't have convictions. You shouldn't have convictions. But it's good to come to a strong conviction for yourself and for your family. But your, your conclusion doesn't make you a better person. doesn't make your kids a better, better people either, just so you know. doesn't mean they're more righteous than someone else. And you can't act as if your conclusions are authoritative. So if your application of Scripture rejects, replaces, or obscures the Word of God, then you are in the wrong. On the other hand, we can't just have a free-for-all and say God doesn't care, right? Because he actually does care about the conclusions we make. And our decisions must be in harmony with God's word. So let me do one last one. Is it right to wash your hands or not? See, that, that's what the question was here, right? That's what the question here. Some kids look at this. and the, You know, you ever had a kid that does that? I had, a, I had a friend in elementary that he would go through the Bible. He knew all the verses for all this kind of stuff, you know. And his teacher would say, hey, go wash your hands. Jesus says you're not supposed to wash your hands, right? No, actually, if your mom says wash your hands, children obey your parents and the Lord, go wash your hands, right? Don't reject the command of God for your twisting of Scripture. But the problem was not that they'd wash their hands and they did all that stuff. Hey, go at it. Have those rituals. Do it. The problem was they thought that washing helped make them right with God, and they used those man-made rules as an excuse to ignore God's word. In fact, let me just go through a couple questions for you to think about, okay? As we kind of try to bring this down and apply this to our lives, ask yourselves these questions. What is the source of authority in your life? What is the source of authority for morality, I should say, in your life for good and evil? Is it society? I mean, do you look at the movies and in society and say, well, what does, what, whatever, what does everyone think? What do other people think? Oh, that must be what is true. I can remember when I was growing up, since my sister was here last week, I can tell stories about her now. You know who she is. We were watching Full House once. And remember that show? I think it's actually back on again or something, but who knows? But the, I can remember they said something about a marriage is 50-50. So I remember we had a little debate on if that's true or not. It's not true, by the way, okay? But that's what they taught on there. So where do you get your beliefs? And I don't remember who was right and who was wrong. I'll just leave that to Jesus. But, but I can remember that. Like that's, that's something that you, as a child or even as an adult, you can look at that society uh, social norm and you think, well, maybe that's right. What's wrong? Well, where do you get your ideas of what's right and wrong? Do you look to the Bible for your standard of right and wrong? Do you, do you consider, okay, how do I view life? Okay, well, what is God's view of life? Second question is, on what basis do you set your personal convictions? Do your convictions flow of whatever you think? Well, I can live however I want to. I'll just do this. Well, my pastor said that, so that's what I do. And some people want that. They'll go up to me and our pastors and be like, what do you think we should do? Tell me what I should do. I just want to know what you say. Well, that's not what God's called me to do. I'm, I want to shepherd you in truth, but it's not, God's not called me to, to, 
to uh, be your Holy Spirit, right? I can definitely help you and I want to help you, but I'm not going to tell you this is this and this and this and this and this and this is how it must be. I'm not going to elevate the commands of men to the, to the on par with Scripture. Or, or do you seek to know God's commands and understand his principles so you can say, God, I want to walk by faith and I want to apply your word. How about this one? Do you consider yourself more righteous than other people because of your application of God's word? You know, so what does that look like? Sometimes it looks like, like, I can't believe that person does that. Can you believe they do that? That's right. <laughs> right? We got to be careful about that, about being critical like that. Or do you find the opposite of that is, do you find your righteousness in Jesus Christ? And you don't think, oh, I do this, so therefore I'm righteous. You say, no, Jesus, I am. I'm a sinner. And I deserve your, deserve your judgment. And only Jesus Christ's righteousness is what give me, gives me righteousness. And I just want to live by faith and obedience to your word. Do you impose your applications and judgment upon other people? Or do you love other people? And you can look at Romans 14 and and learn more about that. And here's the last one here. Does your cultural or personal views and rules cause you to reject God's word? That's what it did for the Pharisees. Let me read one last passage here. Look down in verse number 9. That's what the Pharisees faced. Verse 9, he said to them, Jesus, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, so here's the command of God, honor your father and mother. And also Moses said, whoever reviles mother or father shall surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is the word Corban means given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your traditions and you ha- that you have handed down. And you do many such things. It's not just in that area. It's pervasive in your entire life. So he quotes two verses here to them. And it's, it's clear we should honor our parents. In this society, children generally lived with their parents and children were their retirement program. And so especially when they got older, the, the children would take over the wealth and they would then therefore take care of their family. And what they were saying here is that there was a religious rule that if you had wealth and you said, this is given to God, then you're not required to do whatever your vow was before or your responsibility was before. In this case, they take care of your parents and you could therefore transfer and say, now I can do whatever God wants me to do with it. However, I define God wants me to do with it. So I don't have to take care of my parents anymore. And so you reject the commands of God for your own commands. And so that's kind of what he's, that's what he's talking about here. So you have the two views of evil. Well, we're only going to get to the first view today. Aren't you glad about that? But what's the two views of evil? The first view, view of man, is that the standard is defined by mankind. And I'm not going to go through this one, but the scope is that evil is the problem of other people. It's easy to point the finger, right, and say, they're the ones that have sin, and you ignore the sin in your own life. But Jesus says the standard for evil is defined by God's word. And the scope of evil is actually it's universal. All of us have a heart, a sinful heart, I should say. All of us need the redemption that's found in Jesus Christ. If you're a person in here today and you don't have Jesus Christ, in other words, you have not turned from your sin, you're not believing the gospel of Jesus and living that day, way on a daily basis, I, I invite you to understand the scriptures as God's truth to you. And his word is truth. He sets the standard. He gives you what is good and what is evil. But also, listen, even more importantly, he doesn't just do that. He gives you the promise that if you believe in Jesus Christ, that all your evil, all your sin can be forgiven. And you can have redemption in his son. The Bible is just not, not just a bunch of rules, right? Because the commands of God are actually only there to show you how bad you are. But actually, the Bible is given to tell you how awesome God is and that he's provided Jesus Christ for you. Redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. Well, I invite you today to, to receive Jesus Christ and turn to him. And then if, as Christians in here, we just need to consider what is our standard for truth? I think it's good to think through issues like that because it helps us understand what is the filter by which I am looking at my life in this world. When you watch the news, when you read the news, when you interact with people, it's good to keep in the back of your mind that whole idea of what is their standard of truth? What is my standard of truth? 
Does what they are saying line up with God's word? Is my, are my applications lining up with God's word? So it's good for us to think that way and also for us to have so much humility. It's easy for us, to st- for humans in general, but for us as Christians to stick our nose in the air and pride. Oh my, how wicked is that? Our noses should be in the ground, in humility, and in prayer, asking for the grace of God. You're not any better than anyone else. In fact, you're just as sinful and debased as those people are, right? Because we are all under the judgment of God for our sin. And the only reason that we are children of God, Christians, is because God has had mercy upon us through Jesus Christ. And give us that perspective. And as we consider some of the issues and people we talked about earlier, may we not think in anger towards those people, like that representative. May we have compassion upon him and pray for his soul that he will see his sin. He will see the reality of this world and the truth. And he'll come to Jesus Christ, right? That is the right perspective. And so may God, through the word of God, help us to see the truth and the reality of this world. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we do want to have a correct perspective of this world, of reality, of eternity. And I pray for each one of us as believers in here. It's, I know for myself, I can get very confused as, as I look at the news, I watch the news, or as I read about what's going on in our society. And But God, your word gives us clarity. Your word is truth. And you promise that your spirit will help us to know the truth. And the truth can set us free. And so I, I pray for each one of us in here, wash our mind with your word each day. Holy Spirit, guide us and show us the reality of of this world and who you are and what you want us to do. And I pray that you'll give us all humble hearts before you. May we be humble before you. May we be humble before each other. God, help us to faithfully apply your word. Sometimes in things like this, God, I know we can say, oh, then I don't have to do that. No, God, we we stand before you as your servants. We want to be humble and faithful taking your word and living it by faith. So may we do that for your glory, for the good of other people. And I pray you'll do that. God, I pray you'll bless us as we go from this place. This week, we need your power. We need your strength. We need your wisdom. Spirit of God, please give that to each one of these believers in this room. We are the church. We're the church. And Jesus, you are our head. You are in charge. So may we look to you today and this week by faith and live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.